We're looking at Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. The Apostle Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So what exactly does it take for a person to get a reservation at Cinderella's Royal Breakfast in Disney World? Uh, I don't know if you know about this, but Disney World, in addition to its other amenities, offers character meals. A character meal is when you have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or or one of those, at some venue in Disney World, and uh, you eat with some of the characters, uh, you, you know, like Mickey, and they come around to the tables, And so the idea is that not only do you get to have a meal, but you also get to be with the characters. You don't have to run around the park trying to find them. You get to meet them there and have your pictures with them. They come over to your table. And the holy grail of character meals is apparently Cinderella's royal round table. It's pretty near impossible to get a reservation unless you buy a very expensive uh, all-included vacation package. But uh, my wife and I were thinking about going to, don't tell my kids, we might go to Disney World uh, in February. I'm going to go on vacation, and so we got the unofficial guide to Walt Disney World with kids. And let me tell you how to get a table at Cinderella's Palace. If you don't purchase a package that includes the breakfast, the only way to get a table is to obtain a priority seating through Disney's central dining reservations. To be specific, you must phone 407-WDW-DINE at 7 a.m. exactly 60 days before you want to eat at Cinderella's. Okay, so it's 6.50 a.m., and all the Disney dining reservationists are warming up their computers, waiting to begin filling available seats at 7. As the clock strikes 7, Disney dining is slammed with an avalanche of calls, all trying to make priority seating for the character breakfast at Cinderella's Round Table. There are over 100 reservationists on duty, and most priority seatings can be assigned in two minutes or less. Thus, the coveted seats go quickly, selling out as early as 7.05 on many days. To get a table, you must dial in at almost exactly 7 a.m., Eastern Standard Time, on the dot. Disney does not calibrate its clock with the correct time, as determined by the U.S. Naval Observatory. But by... (laughs) I am not making this up, as Dave Barry says. (laughs) But by conducting synchronizing tests, we have determined that Disney reservation system clocks are accurate to within one to three seconds. There are several internet sites that will give you the exact time. Our favorite is www.atomictime.net. 
once uh, you've opened up this web page, uh, use it to synchronize your watch to the second. At about 18 to 20 seconds before 7 a.m., dial 407-WWWDIN, waiting to dial the final E until the count of seven seconds before seven. <laughs> what happens next depends upon how many others get ahead of you, but chances are good you'll be able to get a seat. First, speak clearly, but quickly, with as few words as necessary, like four persons at 8.30 for Cinderella's table, please, will get the job done. Bear in mind that while you're talking, other agents are confirming seatings for guests, so you don't want to get into a long-winded conversation. Get <laughs> you, man. Woo. Yeah, I'll just have a hot dog, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's what it takes to get a seat at uh, Cinderella's Royal Table. And if that's how complex it is to get a seat there, the question I have is, what does a person have to do to get a seat at God's table in the heavenly banquet? What does it take for a person to know God, to be forgiven by God, and to be assured that someday we're going to sit with God in the heavenly realms? Is it, I mean, if that's what it takes to get into Disney World, what does it take to get with God? I mean, there's got to be some incredibly elaborate ritual or some complex system of of uh, genuflections and gyrations and prostrations that would get us right with God. And here as we come to our text in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we have the answer. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Unlike Cinderella's palace, to be with God is so simple. It is by grace through faith. <clears throat> well, just to put this text in context, remember what we've been studying. Chapter 2, 1 to 3, we studied two weeks ago. That told us about our horrible plight in sin. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Every human being stands before God as a condemned sinner. All of us are lost. But then last week we saw the good news was verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And now in verse 8, Paul is summarizing the main gist of the passage. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Salvation is by grace. It's by grace. And just to make the point, Paul repeats himself. In verse 5 he says... It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And then in verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. In fact, in Greek, it's almost a verbatim repetition of that phrase. And one of the basic rules of biblical interpretation is if you've ever seen a phrase repeated or some idea repeated in a passage, chances are that's a main point of the passage uh, that it's being emphasized. So here it is, by grace you have been saved. And in verse 8, we have the phrase through faith added on to it. We are saved by grace. Salvation is a grace gift. But maybe we should define grace. We talk about grace a lot. It's kind of a churchy word. It's kind of a, a Christian jargon word. It's a biblical word. It's a great word. But what does it mean? Um, well, if you look at your sermon notes, I have some definitions of grace. Sermon notes is this insert in your bulletin. Take that out and look at the bottom. Where it says grace. Some definitions. Uh, unmerited favor. Maybe you've heard that one. Wayne Grudem cites that common definition. 
Burkhoff called it, uh, described it this way. He said, grace is God's free, sovereign, undeserved favor of love to man in his state of sin and guilt, which manifests itself in the forgiveness of sin and deliverance from its penalty. And uh, a scholar named Hughes said, it's undeserved blessing freely bestowed on man by God. So there's a lot of different ways of construing and constructing grace. But it seems to me that however you define grace, Scripture, if you look on the back, there's two elements of grace. One is the fact that God is in kindness and mercy showing himself to people. God is, is being generous. He's showing favor to people. And it's a free generosity. It's God uh, showing kindness to people who don't have any claim upon his kindness. So that's one side of grace is that God is kindly you can write that down however you want. Make up your own definition. But it's, it's God showing favor toward people. And the second part of grace, it seems, is that the people getting it deserve the opposite. It's that the people who, who are receiving the grace actually deserve condemnation. They don't deserve mercy. They deserve judgment. They are uh, ill-deserving and undeserving. They're sinners. And so you have unmerited favor. That shows the favor of God and the fact that we haven't merited it. In fact, we deserve the opposite of forgiveness and mercy. Like the son in the, the, the song that was just sung. He didn't deserve to be taken back by his father. He had cut ties with his father. And yet, in mercy and grace, the father shows favor and kindness to the undeserving. Or, uh, if you look back at verse 4 in Ephesians 2, we have a great definition of grace. He says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. There's the kindness. And then here's the, the undeserving part. While we were dead in transgressions. And then he sums up that whole thing by saying, it is by grace you have been saved. So there's a, a biblical definition of grace. God's kindness to people who are in transgressions and sins. It is an incredibly surprising... You know, one of the, I was thinking about one of the praise songs we sang was... Um, hallelujah uh, for God's love. And, and one of the lines was, your love is surprising. And there is a surprising element to grace. It kind of comes out of nowhere. It, it catches you off guard because it's not something that would fit the, the equation of someone who's done something terribly wrong and deserves the opposite. And yet God comes in kindness and in mercy. To help us understand grace further in verse 8, it says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Perhaps that's the best single word uh, description of grace is that it's a gift. It comes out of nowhere. It's, it's a total gift from God. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You don't pay for it. You don't pay it back. You don't barter for it. It's just a gift. It just is handed to you. Oh, there I have the gift. And God out of nowhere gives us this free gift. Heaven is a free gift. Eternal life, salvation is a free gift. It's a gift of God. When I was thinking about this, I, I thought of that famous uh, book turned into a musical, Les Miserables. I don't know if you've seen Les Mis uh, or read the book by Victor Hugo, uh, the uh, 19th century French novelist. It's actually, I think it was turned into a movie too. Um, of course, that's probably the first place I think I saw it. Uh, it was in the movie <clears throat> with my uh, cultural highbrowness. Um, but you know how that story begins. I'm not going to tell you the ending of it. I'm trying to reform my ways. But the beginning, <laughs> it, it's, <laughs> it starts uh, with um, Jean Valjean. You know the story. And Jean Valjean has just comes off a 19-year stint in prison. And uh, he, had broke, he had just stolen a loaf of bread 19 years prior and then had tried to escape three times. And that's how he was in for 19 years. He's finally out. And the story opens. He's, he's traveling through the Alps. He's hungry. He's trying to find a place to stay. No one will put him up in the inns because they know he's an ex-con. 
until finally he comes to the house of a bishop in town at the abbey. And the, and the bishop takes him in, gives him a warm meal, shows him the bed. Uh, and, and so Jean Valjean is sleeping there, and he wakes up in the middle of the night, and he had seen in the bishop's house some silver plates, some beautiful silver plates that were worth uh, hundreds of francs, which was more money than he had made in all his 19 years serving on the prison galleys. And so in the middle of the night, he creeps out, opens up his uh, haversack, puts in the silver plates, and he sneaks off into the night. Well, the next day he's caught, and three policemen bring uh, Jean Valjean with his stolen goods back to the abbey and bring him to the, the bishop. But, you know, he's just busted. There he is in front of the bishop. He's got the, the six silver plates in his hand. And, and the bishop walks up to Jean Valjean. He says, oh, there you are. I'm so glad you came back. You forgot the other two things I was going to give you. You know, Jean Valjean's like, you know, looking around and, and the police say, oh, so we can leave now? Oh, yes, you can go. And Jean Valjean goes over, I mean, uh, the, the bishop goes over, takes the two pure silver candlesticks and gives them to Jean Valjean. He says, you forgot these. Take these too. And, you know, at this point, Jean Valjean is terrified. And the bishop leans close to him and he says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. You know, it's just, that's grace right there. It's a person who deserves the opposite, like us, getting this, this great grace gift. We come before God busted, caught red-handed, sinners. None of us can stand before God. And God says, oh, you forgot something, and he gives us more. And instead of giving us candlesticks, he gives us his son. And he gives us every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he just dumps blessings on us. And you know, we're just kind of like, Wow. I can't believe this. It's so unreal. Is this really happening to me? That's the grace of God. It's this undeserved gift that comes out of nowhere and overwhelms us. Grace means that a tidal wave of God's love and mercy has splashed down upon dirty sinners and washed them clean out of nowhere. It's grace. And it's not only grace, it is also grace through faith. Grace is the nature of salvation. It is God's kindness expressed to us. It's a gift. Then the next question is, how do you take the gift? Or how do you get it? Well, through faith. So that grace is the source of salvation, and faith is the way that I, I appropriate salvation for myself. Uh, we should probably define faith. We've defined grace. Faith is trust. It's probably the best one-word definition I can give you of faith. Faith is trust. It's when you believe something to be true, and so you trust that and put, you, put the weight of your life upon it to trust it because you believe it to be true. You know, I believe, I, I believe, I have faith that this door will hold me up, and so I trust it and I sit down on it, and therefore it, it upholds me. And that's the idea. I believe that Christ is my Savior. I believe that He died for my sins, that He is a merciful, compassionate Savior. And so I put the, my trust on Christ, and I, I believe in Him. That's the idea of faith. And uh, faith is a beautiful thing, too. When I think of faith, the Old Testament story that comes to mind is Moses in the desert with all the snakes. You know that story? That seems to me to encapsulate faith. Actually, let's turn there real quickly. Take your sermon notes or something and put a bookmark in Ephesians. And look at the Old Testament book of Numbers. It's the fourth book of the Bible, and it's on page uh, 151, Numbers chapter 21, verse 4.
have left Egypt. They went to Mount Sinai, got the Ten Commandments, went to the Promised Land, chickened out, and are now wandering in the wilderness. That's where they are. And it says in verse 4, They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread. There's no water. We detest this miserable food. And they go on and on with their mouths full of complaints and criticisms. In verse 6, Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord would take away the snakes from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. That's such a great picture of faith, because that's essentially what faith is. It's, it's looking at something and, and trusting in something. You had to believe that the, snake would, the bronze snake would save you, in a sense, and you had to look at it. And, and faith is just looking. It's, it's lifting up your head. It, it's the, it's the, the anti-action. It's not an action at all, in a sense. It's just trusting. It's dependency. It's recognizing your bankruptcy and your snake-bittenness and, and trusting in that, that bronze statue. Now, this is the cool thing. Do you remember what, John, what uh, Jesus says in John chapter 3? Oh, I love this. John chapter, you don't have to turn that. I'll just read it to you. John chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Oh, that's so cool, isn't it? I love that. That it just as that snake was lifted up and you, in, in faith, look to the snake and believe in it. So in the same way Christ was lifted up on a cross and we're kind of like these snake-bitten-with-sin sinners and we look up and we see Christ, and by simply trusting in Him, we are saved. Faith is just that simple act of looking up in dependency and trust. That's all it is. Maybe you've heard the story of how Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century Baptist preacher, was saved. Uh, his salvation story goes this way. It says, on January 6, 1850, a snowstorm almost crippled the city of Colchester, England. A teenage boy was unable to get to church, and that was Spurgeon that he usually attended. So he made his way to a nearby Methodist chapel, where an ill-prepared layman was substituting for the absent preacher. The layman's text was Isaiah 45:22, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For many months this teenager had been miserable and under deep conviction of sin, but though he had been reared in a church, he didn't have assurance that he really was saved. So he went to this church, and the unprepared substitute minister did not have much more to say, so he just kept repeating the text. <laughs> I should try that some Sunday. Um, <laughs> Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He kept saying that over and over. And then he would sort of elaborate on it. He would say, a man need not go to college to, to learn to look, he shouted. Anyone can look. A child can look. And about this time, he saw Spurgeon sitting to one side, and he pointed at him and said, Young man, you look very miserable. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. And the young man did look by faith, and that was how the great Spurgeon was converted. That's what salvation is. It's looking to Christ. So you can know that you're saved. Salvation isn't something that slowly accrues over time like interest in a bank account. It's something you either have or you don't have. It's a gift. 
you, know, you, you don't sort of have a gift. You either have the gift or you don't have the gift. It's either yours or it isn't. And so that's how Christians can say, I was saved two years ago. I mean, you know, that's not arrogance. That's just kind of a fact. That's when I received the grace gift because I put my hands out and I took it. So you either take it or you don't take it. But it's not like some limbo thing where, gee, I hope I'm saved or someday I hope I'm in heaven with God. It's either are or you aren't. And it's received by faith, which is an instantaneous act of trusting in Christ. There's a great quote that I included in the sermon notes. I really like this quote. Uh, it's on the back by the uh, preacher D. James Kennedy. It's down in Florida. He says, The Bible says eternal life is a free gift from God. It is undeserved, unworked for, unstriven for, unmerited, undeserved. It's a gift completely paid for by Christ and offered by His free grace. Then how long does it take to obtain this gift? You merely reach out and take it. Eternal life is a gift that is received in an instant. Did you receive a gift last Christmas? Did it take you 20 years to get it? Do you know whether or not you have it? So it is with eternal life. Salvation is a free gift, and it's received by faith. And when you receive it, you have it. It's, it's yours. Faith is. And then to, to further help us understand faith, he goes on to contrast it with something that's the opposite in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. And then here's the phrase in verse 9. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Here and throughout Paul's writings, he contrasts two ideas. There's faith on the one hand, and there's works on the other. And faith and works represent two different ways of approaching God. Uh, faith says it is the open hand, it's the empty hand, it's the bankrupt hand that says, I don't have God, I can't save myself. Save me. It's, it's extending an empty uh, uh, beggar's hand to Christ. Works, on the other hand, has something in it. It might be status, it might be your pedigree, your upbringing, it might be good works or religious rituals, but it's something that you're kind of bartering with and you're handing that to God or showing that to God. So it's the empty hand of faith versus the, the full hand of works. And, and we have to come to God one of those two ways. And Paul is very adamant. We are saved not by works. There's nothing we can bring to God, show to God, point to, that curries favor before God, between us and God. Uh, it's all by faith. It's by saying, I have nothing. I'm filing for bankruptcy, God. I'm spiritually broke, impoverished. You must save me by your free grace. Because if it's not by grace, if there's some works we bring to it, then grace is not grace. Because it's no longer a gift. It's something we earn. Works takes many forms. Uh, in the time of Paul, there was a, a controversy in the early church about between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. There were some Gentile, uh, Jewish Christians in the church who saw all these Gentiles coming to Christ, and they said, that's great, I'm glad they're coming to Christ. And they also need to be circumcised, keep the Sabbath, and keep kosher. And so there's this debate. Do Gentile Christians have to take on Judaism in addition to Christ? Or, or is Christ enough? And the church had to wrestle through that. And Paul's argument was, no. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works. And if a person has to take on works in addition to Christ, then now it's works. And it's not grace anymore. Because the problem is, once you do something like that, then you can boast in it yourself. You can say, well, you know, I also keep Sabbath. And I keep kosher. And, uh, you know, it was tough. But, uh, hey, I, I went the whole circumcision route. I did the whole Jewish thing. You know, so, you know, look at me. I'm, I'm bragging. And Paul says, no, no, it's not by works so that no one can boast. It has to be grace. It has to be a gift. 
Works takes a lot of form, religious backgrounds. Perhaps you grew up in some church or another, or maybe went to some religious school or parochial school growing up. And for whatever reason, you came out of that context with the idea that being right with God is a matter of doing things. That it's, well, you have to be baptized as an infant or as an adult, or you have to uh, take certain sacraments, or you have to do certain acts of penance, or you have to do some kind of ritual and if you do the right rituals in the right way, then you can be saved. <clears throat> or you can be right with God. Or some people I talk to say, well, I'm doing those things. And I say, well, are you sure that you're saved? Well, I don't know. I hope so. So you know, some people even do those things, and they still don't know if they're right with God. <clears throat> or maybe you come out of a different context, um, which is just sort of the secular one. And I think this is probably the most common form of works orientation today, is you ask people uh, about faith and about God, and they say, well, you know, I'm a good person. What's the big deal? You know, you know, yeah, I'm not perfect, but yeah, I'm good. I haven't ever killed anybody, so I'm sure it's good enough for God. I remember talking to a guy at a party. It was probably, must have been like seven, I was trying to think, six, seven years ago when I first moved out here, and it was uh, some friends of my wife, and I sort of tagged along this party. I was talking to this guy who was half in the bag, and I guess he sort of loosened up and wanted to talk about religion with me. He knew I was in seminary, and, and he said, look, I'm a good person. I've never killed anybody, I've never hurt anybody, and I'm generous. Anyone needs anything, they know they come to me, I give it to them. And you're trying to tell me that I'm a bad person? I said, well, yes and no. I mean, no, you're not a bad person in the sense that you can always find someone worse than you. There's always a, a serial killer or someone you could point to and say, well, I'm not that. But no, you're not a good person in the sense that we're all sinners. We all stand before God as sinners in, in different ways. And that really ticked him off. And he started getting angry. And, and he said, hey, if, uh, you know, if, if I'm not good enough for some divine being, then maybe I would prefer just to go to hell. It's like, whoo, you know, scoot away from that guy. I don't want to get hit by the lightning bolt. <laughs> but the good news is, if he would repent and accept the gift of faith, even that blasphemous comment would be forgiven. Because there is grace for everyone who repents. Even the most hardened uh, obstinate, refractory sinner can be forgiven by God's grace because God is that kind of God. It's through faith. So it's not works. There's nothing we can point to in ourselves, not even that I'm a good person. We have to come to God empty-handed, receiving from Him, not offering or bartering or trading anything that we might have with Him. As Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And that's the heart of works. It's a boasting before God. It's claiming something before God. <clears throat> and when we boast, we detract from God's glory. When we boast, we take away from grace. Because grace says God's done it all, but boasting says, well, I've done a little bit. Even if it's 99% God and 1% me, I'm taking 1% of God's glory. And God is a jealous God. He will not share His glory with another. As He says in verse 7, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It is so that God may be glorified that He chooses to save us by grace through the emptiness of faith. It is by grace through faith that we are saved. And it's so simple. That's the beauty. It's not complex like getting into Cinderella's round table. Uh, it's so simple. It's just grace through faith. And some people hear it and they say, that's too simple, you know. It can't be that simple. There's got to be a catch. There's always a catch. Well, yeah, there's a catch. The catch is Jesus Christ died on a cross to pay for that gift. 
And the catch is when you put your faith in Christ, you now belong to Him, and He belongs to you, and, and you are His, and you obey Him. But I mean, if that's the catch, catch me. <laughs> I'm caught. That's great. What a great catch to belong to God. I'm there. But we're the ones who make it complex. We're the ones who come up with rituals. And well, there must be some guru you have to study under for 20 years in order to receive religious enlightenment. Or or there's certainly got to be some painful, horrible fasting and penance I have to go through to have assurance of salvation. Or maybe it's like feng shui, you know, where you have to organize all the furniture in your house the right way to keep... Have you heard of this? It's really weird. And and keep the, uh, you know, the energy sort of properly aligned in your house. And, And we sort of go through a spiritual feng shui. Well, if I do this and I and I go to this, and I say this, and maybe, you know, I get the spiritual energy going, you know, whatever. And it's like, no, it's so simple. It's just grace through faith. It's so simple that a child can understand it, and a child can explain it. I have to tell you this final story, and I need to brag a little bit, because it's my daughter. <clears throat> but uh, I sort of had that right as a parent, I guess. But uh, my, my six-year-old daughter was sitting on the kindergarten bus next to her, her buddy John, uh, I think, it, was it Monday she was sitting with John? She said, this is Monday. And uh, she just leans over to John and says, so have you ever asked Jesus into your heart? He goes, no. What's asking Jesus into your heart? What does that mean? She says, well, it's when you tell God that you're sorry for your sins and that you believe in Jesus and you want him to come into your heart and forgive you. He goes, hmm, I want to ask Jesus in my heart. And she goes, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll pray. <laughs> <laughs> And she says, I'll pray, and then you pray after me and pray the things that I pray. Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins. Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins. And I, I believe in you, Jesus, and I believe in Jesus, and I want you to come into my heart. And I want you to come to my heart. And she goes, okay, I'll, I'll get you a Bible tomorrow, she tells him. And <laughs> you know, I, you know I'm, I'm soon to retire. Uh, <laughs> The gospel is so profound that theologians have written volumes and volumes on it, and yet it's so simple that a six-year-old kindergartner can understand and explain it to another six-year-old kindergartner. It's just so simple. And in some ways, those six-year-old kindergartners are more ready to accept it because they are used to living by dependent faith. And kids, you know, kids are just used to asking for things, and if you say no, then it's no, and they can't do anything. But we adults, you know, we make it so complex. Kids are ready because they're just, sure, I mean, everything's given to me as a grace gift. I'm used to this. This is how life is for a six-year-old. And so we have to come to God not as armchair theologians, but as six-year-old kindergartners. And we have to say, I would like Christ. And so I come to you now not as a pastor and theologian, but as one six-year-old to other six-year-olds, just saying, have you asked Jesus into your heart? I mean, it's so simple. Would you like to? <laughs> Would you like to pray with me like, like my daughter did? Let's pray. If you would like to receive the gift of eternal life and to receive Christ into your life, to know for certain that you are saved, I'd invite you to pray this simple prayer. God, I do confess that I am a sinner. And I admit that I cannot save myself by my own good works. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. And I 
ask Him to forgive my sins. Lord Jesus, come into my heart and be my Lord and my Savior. Lord Jesus Christ, we gospel, and we thank You for the freeness of the Gospel, that it is freely offered, that it is preached to all men and women everywhere, calling upon them to be saved. And Lord, I pray that you would, you would work in such powerful ways in this New England area, that you would use us this week to be little six-year-olds sitting on the bus to other six-year-olds and tell the simple gospel message. And Lord, then I pray that as we understand this simple message, that we also might go deep and understand the profoundness of it, that we might realize how incredible it is that you've saved us by grace. And so Lord, open our understanding and warm our hearts. Make us your evangelists. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.